This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, September the 19th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the inquest into the death of Samuel Brown has issued 21 recommendations aimed at the Ministry of Education. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore will give you the latest. The Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act's fourth review has still not been released. Big delay there. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton will share her frustration with the slow process. And... Living to 100 is a Netflix series exploring the secrets of a long life. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti will offer up a review. That and so much more coming your way across the next two hours, including John Lepke, freelance journalist in the second hour, and a little bit of fun with the weekly news quiz. But the show starts with the top story of the day, and it's all about the economy and cost of living. Stats Canada has released August inflation numbers, Prices went up 4% year over year. Gasoline and energy prices were one of the biggest drivers of price increases. Grocery prices were up 6.9% year over year. That is a decline from last month's 8.5%. StatsCan did point out that although year over year inflation readings at 4%, the month to month inflation number is much lower if you annualize it. As I'm always rambling on to you about, the year over year number is not always the best indicator because as you recall last fall, that's when some of the inflation numbers started to come down. So even if there's some stabilized inflationary paces, they are going to read as increases year over year. But the month over month inflation number is much lower if you annualize it. Now, I mentioned grocery prices. They were also a big focus on the first day of Parliament's fall season. Cabinet ministers met with top executives from Canada's five largest grocery chains. Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne says the meeting was productive. I am pleased to have seen the constructive tone of the discussion over the course of the two hours. And bottom line is that they have agreed uh, to support uh, the government of Canada in our efforts to stabilize food price in Canada. The NDP has a different idea when it comes to food costs. NB- NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has introduced a private member's bill that aims to crack down on prices. The bill aims to change competition laws to make room for more grocery stores in Canada. The bill also gives the Competition Bureau more power to crack down on price gouging. Singh says the government has dragged their heels too long on food prices. I don't believe or have confidence that the Liberals will do it. That's why we propose our own law. But ultimately, we want to see this law passed, we want to see Canadians protected, and we want to see the price of food come down. Staying in the economy, the auto workers' strike continues in the United States. A strike has not yet started in Canada. Unifor is extending negotiations with Ford for 24 hours after receiving an offer from the company shortly before last night's deadline. Unifor National President Alana Payne says there are still key issues up for debate. 
we are not where we need to be on key priority issues. Pensions and the wage package are atop that list. As some of you will know from experience, a lot can happen in the final hours of deadline bargaining, and there's still a lot of negotiating to do. Unifor hopes to reach a deal with Ford that can be used as a blueprint in its negotiations with General Motors and Stellantis. And there has been some progress in the United States auto workers' strike. The United Auto Workers Union and the Big Three have returned to the bargaining table. There is a new deadline of noon on Friday before any escalating job action. 13,000 workers are on strike across three factories currently. Okay, coming back to Parliament, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this story from the world of politics, international relations, and security. Canadian intelligence shows that India's government may have been involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen. Hardip Singh Nijar was a Sikh community leader in British Columbia. Nijar was gunned down in a BC parking lot three months ago. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau discusses the implications. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev also reacted to the news. If these allegations are true, they represent an outrageous affront to Canada's sovereignty. Our citizens must be safe from extrajudicial killings of all kinds most of all from foreign governments. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh reflected on the news. To hear the Prime Minister of Canada corroborate a potential link between a murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil by a foreign government is something I could never have imagined. Singh also addressed the Sikh community directly. Governments around the world are trying to silence you. The Indian government and the Modi government specifically is attempting to silence you. But truth cannot be silenced. Justice cannot and will not be silenced. Canada has expelled an Indian diplomat in response to the investigation. That's your look at the news. Let's get over to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked about public transit. A town in North Carolina replaced buses with an on-demand van service. So I asked you, what's your innovative public transit idea? 0% of you said on-demand service, 50% of you said expanded hours, 43% of you said free fares, and 0% of you said other. Debbie wrote in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. All bus stops should have solar lights so you're safe and the driver can see you upon pickup. Great idea by Debbie right there. Clayton also writes in Accessible Bus Stops and AVA, Automated voice announcements. Yes, please. We need that as a standard on all buses. Studio Brock typically joins in via Twitter in this conversation, but he sent quite the long email to feedback at ami.ca with a whole bunch of ideas. This is a long one, so strap in. First off, eliminate fares. 
Cost is irrelevant as each taxpayer contributes thousands of dollars a year to subsidize each car on the road. If I'm already paying for cars, I want to actually be able to use them. There's efficiency related to this too. Ridership has exploded in my city, which is amazing. The downside is you have to wait for each person to get on the bus, scan their card, pay with cash, and in some instances, get a transfer too. It can take as long as 30 seconds. Multiply that by three to 20 passengers per stop, and it becomes super easy for buses to arrive late, making passengers miss connecting buses. This has a cost in lost wages and productivity, with workers being late and increases the bias against those who bus as we're seen as unreliable by employers. And on a selfish note, I'm so tired of waiting 30 plus minutes on the side of a busy road waiting for a bus. There'd be less of that if I missed less buses. Upload all public transit to the provincial level. Keep the regional bus companies and let them deal with logistics in their city. Just have all the funding and main directive from a single crown corporation. Remember, we're not trying to compete in the market here. Just move as many people as time efficiently as possible. This also opens up the potential for real transit to and around the north of the province and improved service and ridership between cities in the south. Brock goes further here. Here's where he really expands his brain. Trains, properly built, light rail transit that's powered off the electrical grid and interacts with roads as little as possible. While we're building those, just give us lots of bus rapid transit. And while we're at it, I'd adopt pedestrian-focused infrastructure. For example, traffic lights that detect and prioritize pedestrians. Sidewalks not sloping down the road. The roads having to slope up like a giant speed bump when there's sidewalks, more pedestrian islands in the middle point between roads, and more cycle scooter friendly sidewalks. Basically streets that look like the Netherlands with a train network to rival China for scale and Japan for reliability. That is my dream. Brock, top, top tier email. Feedback at ami.ca. Well done by you. Today's daily poll requires a little bit of setup. Casual is the new formal for United States Senators. M. Wynn explains. As of today, the U.S. Senate will no longer enforce a dress code for members after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently sent the directive to the chamber's sergeant-at-arms. This means lawmakers will no longer have to poke only their heads and arms into the chamber to vote if they're wearing anything but formal clothes. An obvious beneficiary is the first-term Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, who often sports a trademark hoodie on Capitol Hill. Some congressional Republicans are reportedly criticizing the new standards saying stop lowering the bar. MWIN, ABC News, Washington. Yeah, forget lowering the bar. Let's make this totally formal. Tuxedos and ball gowns only in the halls of government. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You've literally been hearing me talk for 10 straight minutes. So let's go right to the question. How do you feel about dress codes? Good, bad, or I don't care? Amanda Shikarchi, how do you feel about dress codes? I think in a government perspective, there definitely should be a dress code because there's a formality that goes into this. You know, you're representing the country. You don't want to go into a parliament meeting, meeting wearing sweatpants. However, from a student perspective, 
I do think like most of the schools that I went to did not have like my elementary and high school did not have dress coding. And part of the fun there was actually getting to decide what to wear every day and, you know, doing my hair, picking up my shoes and all that. So I think schools know, but parliament and formal meetings like that, for sure, there should be a dress code. Alex Smythe, what about you? Where do you stand on the issue of dress codes generally, but maybe specifically in the halls of government? Yeah, so I, I tend to kind of agree that there should be some form of dress code or decorum within how you present yourself as a member of the government, a member of parliament. You are there representing others. You're not there representing yourself. So there should be some level of professionalism and how you're you're pro set. I agree. I don't want to see people starting to show up in sweatpants. I, I love John Fetterman. I love his his whole aesthetic and he's very casual. I, I'd like to see at least a formal sweatshirt or a hoodie, you know, like maybe maybe uh, dress it up a little bit more. I mean, that may be a bit much to ask from him, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think there's certainly real areas where it, it does make sense to apply it as long as the rules make sense, as long as there's a clear reason why you're doing it and not just like, in, as Amanda says in school, well, no hoodies because there, there is, uh, uh, we, we want to be able to see your faces or this or that, like th those rules don't make sense. Like, or if it's something where it's like, oh, well, no, no name brands or this or that, because we, we have specific rules around it. Those, those rules don't make sense to me. If it's a clear professional environment, like an office, you, you want people to at least dress to, to be professional in a workplace. So yes, on some level, but overall, just in general, just for the sake of having one, no, I I, I don't uh, believe there should be any dress codes uh, for that regard, but professional setting, sure, at least a minimal one. So Alex, what you're arguing is maybe it doesn't need to be a suit and a tie, but you're advocating for some kind of dress code. Yeah, exactly, Dave, just not the, just kind of like the bare minimum, like, you know, maybe instead of just sweatpants, have have slacks or, or some nice jeans on, you know, <laughs> ones that don't have a 25 holes in in the legs you know something like that but okay i'm not asking the moon here let's let's be honest alex smythe making the dave brown argument that oftentimes you should wear pants that require a belt if you want to go out into public okay uh, I, I can pick up what you're putting down there i can pick up what you're putting down maybe i was being a little facetious about tuxedos and ball gowns only in the halls of governments what do you think at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook or email be like studio brock send me a super long email and I will read it on air with limited to no editing feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or you can pick up the phone and give the show a call 1-866-509-4545 1-866-509-4545 coming up after the break living to 100 is a Netflix series exploring the secrets to a long life Entertainment critic Amy Amanti will review it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome 
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A new Netflix series explores the question of what it takes to live a long life. Live to 100, Secret of the Blue Zones, explores places around the world where residents live significantly longer than the average person. Here's a clip from the trailer. What's the best tea to drink on a daily basis? Kokoshaki. Wine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you roll. I have found that most of what people think lead to a long, healthy life is misguided or just plain wrong. What if we could reverse engineer longevity? I spent the last 20 years trying to do just that. Based on the books by Dan Buettner. Is it okay if I... He squeezes a woman's arm. Instead of looking for answers in test tubes, I found five places around the world called Blue Zones where people are living to 100 at the highest rates in the world. What is the secret to living a long time? Community. If you're depressed, you're not going to live very long. So the steepness for us is very important. Just by walking, you have an additional energy expenditure. Do we want to be dormant or do we want to serve humanity? <laughs> Entertainment critic Amy Amanti has thoughts on Live to 100. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Amy, what exactly were you looking for when you pressed play on here? I don't know, the Fountain of Youth? No. <laughs> <laughs> Are we all looking for uh, how to live longer? I mean, I just... For me, it's not about living longer. I mean, we could all want to live to 100 or 115 or whatever the longest living human is. But quality of life, I think, is probably a little bit more important than quantity of life. Um, you know, having a, my grandmother, actually all of my grandparents lived well into their 90s. Um, not all of them had a quality of life that I would say that maybe I wanted to uh, to experience in my 90s. So I would say that I'm, I would be wanting to know uh, if I lived to be in my 90s, uh, how I would achieve a quality that I would want to uh, enjoy being 90 plus years old. The trailer for this series describes five places that are visited as blue zones. What exactly mm -hmm. is a blue zone? Yeah, so the blue zone is is simply a, a tool of uh, how they look at the map of the world. Uh, so they're literally dots on a map of, of how you calculate folks that are 100 years old or older. Um, and so literally, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a legend. It's a key. It's how you um, how you look at a map and you and there's different sort of different colors of blue. So so if you're like sort of 90, it might be a lighter blue. If you're closer to 95, it's a darker blue. If you're 100, it's a dark dark blue. Right. So there's um, you can you can see the populations of of where people are that are of the uh, oldest age. So what did you learn? What did you take away from this? You know, some of the things I think we know how to uh, keep our bodies healthy, like we know a good, healthy diet is important. I think we know exercise is important. I think one of the interesting things that I learned about and, and they kind of showcase it in the clip is like, you know, for example, folks in Osaka, Japan, um, or Okinawa, uh, rather, Japan, are um, uh, they don't have furniture. And, and, and the furniture that they do have is really low to the ground. And so for the entirety of their lives, they are getting up and down from sitting on the ground. And so just the simple act of that is sort of their daily exercise. So they're not going to the gym. They're not lifting weights. They're not uh, getting on an elliptical every day. They're just simply getting up and down off of sort of mats on the ground. 
And so that keeps their bodies limber. And in some of these places in the world, you know, they live in elevated places. And so they're are walking in elevated places. Uh, one of the things that they said that increases your age or increases your longevity by 15 years on average, your healthy longevity is good quality friendships and relationships. Mm. And um, I don't know that I ever gave, like, I think we realize that that's important, but I don't think that I ever gave that level of importance to, um, to th that kind of relationship building. Uh, the importance of giving back to community and volunteering really puts uh, a little uh, longevity into your step. Um, so there's a lot of things that are, are about community, about relationships that are, are maybe more important than what we put in our mouths and the energy that we expend in terms of exercise mm. in our bodies. And one thing that I thought was really interesting in terms of the populations uh, in Japan, parts of Japan, is folks that had survived uh, World War II and some, uh, you know, the, the atrocities that had happened there. And there was, uh, you know, this thought process that folks that had survived, you know, Hiroshima and those kinds of things um, would have perished because of PTSD and uh, the, th the kinds of things that we expect happening after, after a World War event, famine, those kinds of things. And a lot of those folks thrived because they had a different perspective on life and the value of life and what it meant to be alive and to be a human being and so had lived well into their hundreds uh be because of the value that they placed on human life yeah every day is uh, a gift right the notion every that every day is, day is a gift 100 percent right? um uh, really interesting stuff Amy, you mentioned that in some of these cases, things like diet and exercise, yeah, we kind of fundamentally understand that as, as a key to good living. Same thing with community, right? I, I think largely yeah. engagement as being something to help you live a longer life. It's something that gives people purpose. So when some of this stuff is, I suppose, rather known already, how did the series make it so this wasn't just sort of a 20-minute, 22-minute uh, video on an actual full series? How did they go about making sure they weren't just repeating themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting part is that um, they weren't showing the same things in every community that they were visiting, right? So they weren't just showing, uh, you know, uh, all of these different things in Japan and then going to Colombia and showing the same things in Colombia. They were showing little bits of each thing. So, for for example, let's just say uh, they were talking about the food that they were eating in Japan and a concept that they have in Japan is, is uh, translated to Japanese. I wouldn't be able to repeat the language, but it's a concept called eight out of 10 in English. And it's like a little mantra that they repeat before they eat every, anything that reminds them to stop eating when they're 80% full, which is like something I'm going to adopt in my, in my own life. Now, before I eat a meal is reminding myself that I only need to eat until I'm 80% full. Right? Um, so, you know, they don't have to talk about the types of food that we eat in, in every culture. Right. Although there is something in each one of these cultures that is different. The type of tofu that they eat in certain parts of Japan is very different than what they eat in other parts of the world. Right. Um, there's always something that's different in each part of the world. Um, so there is a little bit of repetition, but I think it's packaged in such an interesting way that's sort of culturally appropriate that um, that it can't help but pique your interest. How was the description? How was the audio description? I mean, the audio description is um, 
probably in something like this, not super necessary, to be honest with you, um, because they are, you know, when, when they're talking about fruits and vegetables and the things that they're eating, they're talking about that in the dialogue. So the description doesn't need to come in and, and tell you stuff. Where it becomes uh, necessary is in the subtitles. So if, you know, you're in Japan or you're in Colombia where they're interviewing folks that are speaking foreign languages, then the audio description becomes important in terms of uh, sharing the subtitles. But otherwise, I actually didn't find that the audio description really was all that uh, uh, necessary other than the subtitles. Mm. Amy, should somebody hit play on this one? Yay or nay? Play or nay, says Amy. Play or nay? I mean, I thought that this was super interesting to watch and super interesting to... uh, if you're if you're interested in knowing what marketing and what the North American environment, the environment, just the environment does on a per- on a person's health, because now the studies are looking at these same places now that they have a McDonald's in their environment and a, you know all these fast food places just in their environment, uh, what that now does to the health of these humans that have been living for you know to age hundred one hundred and more, um, it's a really interesting watch. Um, so I would say, yeah, hit play. And they're nice digestible chunks in this little mini series. All right. We like that one. Amy, thank yeah. you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Dave. That's Amy Manti, entertainment critic. You can find Live to 100 Secrets of the Blue Zones on Netflix. Coming up in coming up next, the inquest into the death of Samuel Brown has issued 21 recommendations aimed at the Ministry of Education. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore will give you the update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The coroner's inquest into the death of Samuel Brown has released its verdict. There are 21 recommendations. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore can break down the recommendations and share some of the reaction to them. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. Megan, you have talked about Samuel Brown a couple of times on the show, but let's make sure everyone is up to speed here. What is the relevant background in Samuel Brown's story? Sure. So Samuel Brown was a student at W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind in Brantford, Ontario. And on the morning of February 9th, 2018, he was found unresponsive in his bed in the school's residence. Uh, He was then transported to the Brantford General Hospital just down the street, uh, where he was later pronounced dead. Uh, He was 18 at the time. Uh, Samuel was deafblind, and he had a developmental uh, delay that uh, resulted in uh, several things, including uh, he was non-speaking, so there was some communication Uh, challenges that he would have had. And his mother has compared his overall functioning, uh, like physical ability to about a nine month old old infant. So somebody who needed a lot of help, like eating and and getting around that type of thing. Uh, He would have attended W. Ross uh, since he was four, uh, lived in the residence uh, his entire life. So he died um, in 2018, and since then, the family has been calling for a public inquest. And that's important just to note that in Ontario, 
coroner's inquests are mandatory under certain circumstances. So, for instance, if somebody dies when they are in police custody, or if police are involved in their death, or if somebody, a construction worker dies in a construction site or in a quarry, something like that, there are cases where coroner's inquests are mandatory. Then there are times like this one where it is not mandatory and it's up to the coroner's discretion and families and community members will ask. And that's what happened in this case. So there was, there was a push for several, several years to get this coroner's inquest happening. There were some delays and all these things. And it finally happened at the end of August and it finished and the verdict was released on September 7th. Let's talk about the inquest itself. Who were some of the witnesses and what did they have to say? Sure, so uh, the witnesses really were tried to get as many people who were directly involved in Samuel Brown's life and in the events uh, leading up to his death as possible. So first, the, the jury heard from his mother, Andrea Brown, uh, who talked about her son's life and his personality. And she talked about, like, her quote, one of her main quotes was that he taught you to love and just, like, uh, what a beloved member of their family and their community Samuel was and what his life was like when he was at home on the weekends or, or during holidays. Uh, then the jury also heard from various staff at W.R.S. McDonald's school who were there when Samuel died. So uh, staff and teachers who worked directly with him uh, some of the people who were the last to see him. Um, and then you move on to like paramedics who responded to the scene, the coroner, who, sorry, the pathologist who did the official report on his death, um, and then uh, other school staff. And then we moved into anti-ableism experts. And um, we're gonna get probably touch on this a bit later on in this segment. I know there's a lot of reaction and emotion around this story. And I think that's understandable. Um, I also think it's important to know, I, I attended part of this inquest, it was live streamed. And there were several witnesses who were staff at the school who had to stop their testimony several times because they were in tears. Um, so Samuel was a deeply, deeply beloved uh, member of, of their community and their lives. And these are people who'd known him since the age of four. In some cases, they were there when he learned to walk when he was 10 years old. So it, it was a pretty emotionally heavy few weeks. What was the verdict? Sure. So first, I just want to quickly explain what a coroner's inquest uh, jury's verdict is and what it is not. So the role of a jury at a coroner's inquest is not to assign blame or make any statements of a legal nature. Uh, their, their job is to determine who died, when they died, where they died, what the medical cause of death was, and if the death is natural, accidental, homicide, like a result of a homicide or a result of a, result of a suicide. Um, so again, this is not like a court of law where we are finding anything like legal or criminal in Asia. So in this case, the jury uh, found that Samuel Brown died of natural causes, uh, specifically a form of pneumonia. And then after the jury uh, gives you the who, what, when, where, why, how of somebody's death, their job is to make recommendations. That's the big big part of this inquest. The job is to make recommendations that are aimed at preventing future deaths in similar circumstances going forward. And in this case, they made 21 recommendations, some are to the Ministry of Education, some are to W. Ross McDonald School specifically. Then there's one each to the Office of the Chief Coroner, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, and then the College of Nurses of Ontario. Megan, 
you are not going to go through all 21 recommendations right. here, yep. but what are some of the notable recommendations? Sure. So a big theme that you'll read over and over when you read these recommendations is addressing ableism and particularly addressing medical ableism. And this comes up in all the categories. So this comes up in uh, recommendations to uh, the Provincial and Demonstration Schools branch of the Ministry of Education, under which W. Ross McDonald School falls. And this comes up again in uh, recommendations to the Office of the Chief Coroner and then uh, the nurses and uh, physicians and surgeons of Ontario. So that comes up all the time, a need for training and medical ableism and uh, what that means. Uh, so then there were 10 that were specifically directed to the Ministry of Education, Provincial and Demonstration School Branch. And a lot of those were around uh, policies and reviewing medical resources that are provided to schools that provide overnight lodging uh, to make sure that students have access to appropriate medical care at all times of day and night and to enhance the availability of 24-hour on-call medical staff. Uh, there was uh, recommendations that first responders, so the paramedics and EMS type teams, that every year they're invited to tour these schools so that they know where to go in the case of an emergency, um, that type of thing. Um, and then uh, going back to the anti-ableism thing, there was a, a recommendation that all staff at these schools take yearly anti-ableism training and that they be trained on how to identify illnesses that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are more likely to have. And it came out when some of the medical experts would talk that individuals with uh, developmental disabilities like Samuel Brown had are at times more at risk for things like pneumonia. Um, and then recommendations for W. Ross are very, very specific to things about how the school communicates across different uh, staff departments, including like the health staff and the resident staff, making sure that students' medical needs are clearly known, uh, details about what medical information staff are supposed to report about students and how. And then another key one that you'll hear a lot of people talk about when they talk about this case is uh, one to the office of the chief coroner uh, that, that says that the formulation of cause of death statements involving persons with intellectual and or developmental disabilities be reviewed to avoid ableist conclusions and to ensure illness or injury where appropriate is listed as the primary cause of death. And there was some uh, discussion about this in this case because in some cases, Samuel's uh, intellectual disability, he had a chromosomal deletion, was listed among the causes of death. And while it was a contributing factor to his death, it's not actually the cause of his death. As you said, Megan, there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. There's not enough time to do all of that. But what's been the reaction from the Ministry of Education? Sure. So we got a statement from Grace Lee, who is a spokesperson for the Ministry of Education, and it reads, we send our heartfelt condolences to the family and friends of Samuel Brown and the provincial and demonstration schools community. A student's death is a tragedy that should not happen. We will be using the inquest recommendations to build upon our work to improve the PDSB school system to keep students safe and to ensure that this does not happen again. Uh, the Ministry of Education did not provide further information about how they are specifically going to use those recommendations, but they've said that they will look at them and use them to continue the work that they are doing. And what has the family had to say? 
Sure. So um, the families of lawyer Saren Gabrisselassi um, uh, sent uh, me a statement uh, expressing multiple times uh, the family's profound appreciation for everyone who had asked for this inquest to happen. And uh, the big, big thrust of it is just how grateful they are to Canadians and to Ontarians and to all the advocates who were working hard to make sure that their son's story was heard in this way. And what happens next? Where does this go from here? Right. So this is where some things get a little uh, more complicated. There are some specifics to this coroner's inquest, and particularly uh, one of the witnesses, uh, Tamara Kudak, who was a staff at the school and was one of, if not the last person to see Samuel Brown before he died, she refused to testify. And uh, this, she refused shortly before the inquest started. So in this case, the coroner had the um, opportunity and the option to issue a warrant for her arrest and uh, like to force her to come and testify, and he chose not to do that. That is uh, that is under review, and the family uh, reiterated that in their statement through their lawyer, that this part is being under review. Also, a few years ago, in 2020, uh, the state of Samuel Brown, through, the, through uh, the family's lawyer, did file a lawsuit about this case, uh, about negligence and asking for more information about uh, the circumstances surrounding Samuel's death. And that is still an ongoing issue. So there are some very specific matters about this case that will likely continue for several years. And some advocates are discussing, do we need a law, uh, particularly asking for better oversight of provincial and demonstration schools? And then there's also a broader public conversation. So in the past few uh, weeks, I've had some conversations with W. Ross alumni about the story. People obviously have a lot of interest in this story from the community. And it's important to remember, placing this back into a bigger historical picture, that Samuel Brown died months after a class action lawsuit was settled against the government of Ontario about histo alleged historic abuses at W. Ross McDonald School. So this story is kind of put into this larger narrative of people wanting better accountability for what happens at provincial and demonstration schools. How do we keep children safe, particularly stu students who aren't just vulnerable because of their disabilities, but they're living away from home. Uh, this is where they live. This isn't just a school that they go to. And that's a broader public conversation that's been happening, I think, within communities very close to these schools for years. And it's more of a question if a combination of these lawsuits and then the inquest into Samuel's death will bring more attention and pressure and just discussions about um, what happens at provincial demonstration schools in Ontario. Megan, I know this story has a lot of elements to it. Thank you for your ongoing coverage. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Megan Gilmore, accessibility reporter based in Ottawa. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index fell two-thirds of a percent yesterday, ahead of today's latest update on inflation. Toronto's TSX index lost 129 points to close at 20,492. New York's Dow Jones average crept six points higher, and the Nasdaq added nearly two points. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index dropped 290 points, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.32 cents U.S. The midnight strike deadline has passed, and Canadian auto workers 
workers have not yet launched a strike against Ford Motor Company. Unifor announced early this morning it was extending negotiations with Ford for 24 hours after receiving what it calls a substantive offer from the company just minutes before midnight. The union says bargaining is ongoing and that 5,600 members at Ford should remain ready to strike. StatsCan will release its latest reading on inflation this morning. For August, economists are forecasting inflation re-accelerated to around 4% last month. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. As you may have heard, uh, Karen talked about those inflation numbers. As you know, those were released at about 8.30 a.m. this morning, and uh, the number did hit at 4% year over year. From the world of money to the world of weather. Alex Smythe, you still have your eyes on the Maritimes. Yeah, Dave. So uh, the Maritimes we had focused on uh, this weekend, they had gotten hit with the remnants of Hurricane Lee. Well, they're already facing a follow-up tropical system impacting the exact same area that felt the brunt of Hurricane Lee's remnants. Uh, so areas like the Gaspé Peninsula, they're going to be expecting upwards of 60 millimeters of rain today and tomorrow, along with strong winds in the area. And the worst parts of uh, the Gaspé Peninsula, they received over 100 millimeters of rain over the weekend, and that was the rainiest day on record for the region for September and the eighth rainiest in history. So a lot of more moisture, but the good news, if there's some good news for the region, I like to offer some good news. They the the system's going to be fast moving tonight into tomorrow will be over in Newfoundland and Labrador, so that means Thursday and Friday the forecasts are calling for clearing conditions and sunshine. So it's going to be a nice way to at least start the weekend, Dave. So some some doom and gloom and rain and and uh, poor conditions, but some sunshine on the back end of it. Very good, Alex. Thank you for this. Coming up after the break, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act fourth review has yet to be released. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton shares her frustration with the delay. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act continues to be a bumpy ride. There's been amendments. There's been reviews. There's been deadlines. There have been missed deadlines. The fourth review was supposed to be released on June 30th. Following an interim report, the review has yet to be released. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, has some thoughts on the pending final review of the AODA. Hey, good morning, Dorothy. Good morning, Dave. Dorothy, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but what do you find so distressing about this slow process? Well, you know, the, the interim report was released in March, and I did read it. It's pretty generic. It really doesn't explain what needs to be changed or when uh, or, you know, how they're going to go about it. So I was waiting with bated breath for, for the full review. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'll just look for it on the Internet. And I 
hopped all over the place. I, I love doing research. I looked everywhere, you know, and it doesn't do me any good to find Rich Donovan was appointed, you know, to conduct the AODA review. Yeah. <laughs> that's all that's all past, you know. So I just think, you know, we've been waiting so long. We waited long for the legislation. We had the ODA, then we then we had the AODA, and now we've got the standards or some of the standards, not quite all. Um, and it, you know, why should we have to wait for this review for, for, for till who knows when? <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's more bureaucracy, more consultation, yeah. more paperwork, rather than simply understanding the issue that you've been working on this thing for twenty years. Like, let's get going here. Let let's start putting some things into place. So, Dorothy, I do want to get some of your insights on the process in a moment, but I do I am curious what you think uh, viewers or other Ontarians should be doing to advocate at this point about the process. That's that's difficult to say how to go about it because it doesn't fall under the Ministry of Seniors and Accessibility. Uh, the AODA review is independent, so uh, I, I'm not sure of all the ins and outs, but I assume he was appointed by the Government of Ontario. So I really wouldn't have a clue unless you get in touch with the Premier. <laughs> um, it's um, it, the other reviews, you know, which took place... Uh, I, I submitted to every one of them, and I submitted to this one. I don't even know if they got it because they didn't acknowledge my input. Um, I I was not pleased with the interim review because it wasn't very thorough or specific. And um, I, I have no clue what to do about it, but I think as Ontarians with disabilities and, and the rest of Ontarians, we deserve the right to know the results of this review. The other ones all came out with the full review. Um and it was very specific, very detailed about what the government should do. Mm -hmm. You know, review after review after review. Well, how is the government going to know what to do? 2025 is coming up pretty quickly, and Ontario is supposed to be accessible by then. <laughs> yeah, 20, 2025. I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not wearing a watch here, Dorothy, but uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a little less than a year and a half away. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling about that uh, timeline based on uh, where these reviews and this process is at? Well, you know, it's one of the questions, the very first questions they asked for the review was, did we think Ontario was going to be accessible by 2025? And I said, no. And I'm sure everybody that submitted said, no, I don't think it's humanly possible. Um, there, there's, there are still no health care standards. There are still no education standards. There were three of them that were submitted to the minister quite some time ago. Those, that, nothing's been done with those. Um, and then there are all the pieces of the current legislation with the current standards that can definitely be improved and need to be improved before 2025, if possible. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the other side of it too, right? There, there was always this big number around 2025 saying this is the goal, this is what we're trying to get to, but it yeah. sort of allows people to kick the ball in the can down the road and say, oh, we've got till 2025, and all of a sudden it's September 2023, and you go, oh, gosh, what have we been doing for 20 years? Well, and as you said about bureaucracy, it, you know, it's all tied up with uh, having to go to the minister, having to be, you know, passed through the legislature, all, all of these pieces have to be in place. And then you've got the implementation. Well, you know, as David Lepofsky in the AODA Alliance points out many, many times, 
you know, the implementation is flawed. The, uh, you know, the, the, the way they check up on organizations, the enforcement is, is pretty much non-existent. You know, there are many things they need to fix. Dorothy, I think you and I could go down this rabbit hole for the next eight minutes, but let's try to be a little bit more positive together. Let's go to something that's making folks in the Sioux feel good, and that's celebrating people like Stompin' Tom Connors. There's going to be a special tribute concert coming up, but before you even talk about the tribute concert itself, what's the significance of Stompin' Tom when it comes to the region around the Sioux? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, to me, it's uh, the song he sung. It's called uh, Goma Centra 69. It's about the train, the passenger train that used to run between Sault Ste. Marie and Hearst. Um, and it's one that a lot of people don't necessarily know. You know, every, everybody knows uh, Sudbury Saturday night, right? He's, he spent a lot of time in the north. In fact, um, he, I think he was singing in a bar in Timmins in, in the early days um, for a long time. Um, so, you know, he has quite a history in the North and uh, I mean, everybody knows the hockey song too, but, of course. Um, but the Algoma Central 69, you can, you can hear in the song, you can almost hear the train running along the tracks. And uh, it just does my heart good to think about that because we're still fighting to get, that train reinstated <laughs> as you've ta- as you've talked about many 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 times yes. but dorothy we're yes. doing positivity here we're doing positivity yes, we we're moving on from the negativity <laughs> what are the needs what are the needs to know about the concert okay it's on uh october 7th at the loft which is a really neat location it's it's down by the waterfront in the old um paper mill uh oh sure sorry and uh it it's um it's at seven o'clock and no 7:30 i'm sorry 7:30 and uh it's it's a tribute band as you mentioned and uh i imagine they'll be doing a lot of the songs about the north yeah, you got you to play the crowd pleasers. Yeah. You got to do the crowd pleasers. Uh-huh. Okay, well, Dorothy, there, there's a lot of sort of must-know pieces of information here that uh, people can find out, but no no reason to go over them right here. AMI.ca slash now after the show. AMI.ca slash now for some of the uh, contact points for the concert on October the 7th. One more note here, Dorothy. You like to give a sneak peek of what's going on with the Northern get-together with technology meetings. So... What's going on with the meeting tonight, September the 19th? Yes, it is tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern, and we are really delighted to have three staff members from CELA, the Centre for Equitable Library Access, and they are going to be talking about a new device called the Envoy Connect. It's really exciting because I think it's great for uh, people who are new to vision loss, who um, are nervous about using uh, a daisy machine you know lots of buttons they can maybe get confused it's much simplified it's smaller it's portable um, and you can either download 12 books yourself onto the device or sila can download them or you can have someone else download them i'm thinking even in your public library and when you once you've gone through those songs, uh, those songs, I'm sorry, those uh, <clears throat> those books, books, I got songs on the mind. Uh, once you've gone through those books, um, you can send it back to Sila to have them load twelve more, or you can have someone else help you. Um, and it's a way of uh, getting away from the bigger machines and the discs. Dorothy, 
Fantastic. Thank you for sharing this. Folks can join the meeting tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time via Zoom, david.gtt at ccbnational.net. And you know where that's going after the show, ami.ca slash now. Hey, Dorothy, have a great day. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. That's, Take care. That's Dorothy McNaughton, community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie. In one minute, Amanda Shikarchi will have details about the InSync boy band getting back together. But first, the intersection of human rights and technology is being explored at the United Nations General Assembly. Mike Dubusky reports live for this edition of Tech Trends. The Consumer Technology Association has announced a new focus for the Human Security for All campaign, which focuses on raising awareness for various human rights needs. Gary Shapiro is the president and CEO of the CTA. They decided that they should add something about the right to technology because technology is not only important in solving the most fundamental problems of the world, but it's also important in meeting all the other sustainability goals. He says a part of the goal is to manage the risks of certain technologies, such as generative artificial intelligence. What we'll see is by encouraging innovation, by working with government to ensure that, that new technologies like artificial intelligence, um, self-driving vehicles and others get deployed, but do so in a way that is benefits humankind. Outside UN headquarters with Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Just yesterday I was talking about uh, Mike Dubusky, hardest working man in broadcasting. He took one day off. I guess he took one day off to go down to the UN General Assembly. This is Mike Dubusky. What a worker. Working almost as hard as boy bands in the pop music scene. Amanda Shikarchi in the entertainment report today. In sync is back. Thank you. Yes, they are back in sync. Uh, so, in <laughs> sync is releasing a new single called "Better Place." This will mark their first release in 20 years. Wow! It is for the film Trolls Band Together, where Justin Timberlake voiced a character named Branch and wrote two two songs for wrote songs for the previous two movies. So, Dave, I'm really interested. What do you think about bands getting back? together after years being apart i would suggest to you that the other four members of nsync are deeply grateful to justin timberlake for bringing them back into the fold he put up that first record in the fall of 2002 justified and it was bang zoom to the moon for justin timberlake and left the other guys uh, behind him except lance bass who also tried to go to the moon but in an actual literal way not a figurative way uh it was it's probably fantastic for these four guys to i uh, guess together with Justin, uh, maybe make a few bones, maybe do a little tour, Amanda. They probably are very familiar with how much money the Backstreet Boys made the last couple of years going on tour and doing residencies in Las Vegas. Yeah, I totally agree. This is very exciting to have, you know, such an iconic band, you know, get back together. Like, even though Justin Timberlake has made a name for himself in his solo career. It's still nice to kind of see the roots and where he started and that sound. Like, same things to be said for me when the Jonas Brothers reunited. It was just awesome to see them kind of come back together with a fresh approach and, you know, very ready to share and open up about the challenges they faced, the Jonas Brothers as a family and, you know, when they were as a band and how they were able to mend it and come back so seamlessly. 
Yeah. Amanda, who else is on your wish list? Who else should get back together in the uh, band world? I, I have to say, uh, with Justin Timberlake mending fences with his old buddies, I wonder if uh, Beyonce might want to bring the Destiny's Child band back together. That would be legendary, Dave. If that happened, I would love that. But also what comes to mind is middle school me would not mind a One Direction reunion. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, you know, uh, Harry Styles would have to be the Justin Timberlake on that front and say, guys, oh, I'm going to share a little bit of the pie with you. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, thank you for this. Talk to you in about uh, 40 minutes for the news quiz. Thank you. Sounds good. That's Can't a, wait to battle it out. Battle it out. That's Amanda Shikarchi with your entertainment report coming up after the break. I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson is back for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.